This time of year marks an annual tradition in my household, a Lord of the Rings Extended Edition Movie Marathon. I've mentioned before that I was a teenager when these movies were released about 20 years ago, and since then, every year between Christmas and New Year's, I have rewatched Peter Jackson's trilogy. By my count, I think I've seen those movies each about 30 times. I don't even want to admit how many hours of my life I have dedicated to that. However, because of the magic of J.R.R. Tolkien's world, the beauty of Peter Jackson's storytelling, and the detail of those movies, I see new things and make new connections with each viewing. So this is part one of a two-part episode where I want to share with you some new things I saw in my 30-something viewing of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. But before we get to that, I want to say thank you for those of you who have sent in feedback by way of the listener survey I announced a few episodes back. I'm amazed at all the positive feedback and cherish all the critical feedback as well. And thank you for some new reviews in Apple Podcasts. Each of your ratings and reviews is so helpful in helping more wanderers of Middle-earth to find this show and be part of this community. Here's two recent new reviews. Shout out to listener Emily Ann, who said, quote, I've read LOTR and seen the movies. Haven't read or seen The Hobbit yet. I'm loving learning about all the roots for the stories I enjoy so much. When I read The Silmarillion someday, I'll already have a basic understanding. Thanks for creating this very interesting and approachable podcast. Well, Emily, you are very welcome, and I thank you for the review. I highly recommend that you read The Hobbit. As for The Hobbit movies, you can skip those, in my opinion. I'm glad to have been helpful in exploring the roots of Tolkien's fantastic stories, and I hope you read The Silmarillion someday. And shout out to another listener, Bells64, who said, Great in-depth look into the lore. I'm having to rewatch all the movies and reread the books to catch all the things I missed before. Thank you for that review. Yes, The Lord of the Rings is not a one-and-done experience. In my view, it's the fantastical wandering of a lifetime. Now, let's wander. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring movie was released in the United States on December 19, 2001, and was followed by The Two Towers on December 18, 2002, and The Return of the King on December 17, 2003. Directed by Peter Jackson and written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, the movies were filmed concurrently during principal photography, a revolutionary feat for filmmaking. The Return of the King would go on to sweep the Academy Awards, winning in every category it was nominated for and walking away with 11 awards. The movies are an adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy classic, The Lord of the Rings, but you likely knew that already. In my opinion, these movies are a 10 out of 10 in terms of movie magic, storytelling, and adaptation of Tolkien's works. I am consistently surprised, though I've seen these films more than two dozen times. Each time I watch them, I see something new that I hadn't noticed before. Also, I only watch the extended editions of the movies. In fact, I can scarcely remember the theatrical versions. So if I mention a scene that you haven't heard of, good chance it's in the extended editions, which, as of this episode date, the movies are available on Amazon Prime Video, and I think maybe even the extended editions, so if you want to start up that service with a discount, check out my link in the show notes for a free trial. Let's start with the Fellowship of the Ring. In the prologue, when Gollum finds the ring, Galadriel says, quote, When chance came. 
I've explored this theme of Tolkien pretty extensively in this podcast, the theme of chance. This theme seems to be closely connected with the One Ring. By chance, it was found by Gollum. By chance, Thorin met Gandalf and subsequently took Bilbo to the Misty Mountains. And by chance, Bilbo found the ring. And so many other chance events happened on the journey to destroy the ring. So this small word choice is packed with a lot of meaning in Tolkien's world and shows the care and detail that the movie writers put into their screenplay, whether by design or by chance. After the prologue, the shot changes to a map of Middle-earth, and we hear Bilbo speaking aloud as he writes his memoir. He gives a date, quote, 22nd day of September, in the year 1400, by Shire Reckoning. If you've listened to the previous episodes, we've been covering the important dates and years that are found in the appendix to The Lord of the Rings. This date is the day before Bilbo and Frodo's shared birthday, and the day before Bilbo's long-expected party that starts us on the whole adventure. This event is actually 17 years before Frodo will leave the Shire with the ring. Shire Reckoning is the calendar system used by the Hobbits. Year 1 of Shire Reckoning equates to Third Age 1601, which was when Hobbits first settled and colonized the Shire. So some quick math. The events that are portrayed in the books and movies start in Third Age 3018. Subtract 1601 years for Shire Reckoning, and subtract 17 years between the long-expected party and Frodo leaving the Shire, we come to the year 1400 by Shire Reckoning. Which, now that I think about it, the movies don't show Frodo hanging out in the Shire with the ring for 17 years. They make it look like a week. That's no surprise, because they have to adapt the movie to be faster than the book. But it makes it feel like Frodo is there a couple of weeks while Gandalf is in Gondor investigating the ring. So the question for me here is, what years do the movies actually claim to take place in Middle-earth? That's not super clear to me. Back to the long-expected birthday party for Bilbo. The scene opens with a firework bursting in the sky. I do not know how through 30 viewings of this scene I never noticed this before, but that opening firework expands into the shape of a giant beech tree with green and gold leaves. At first glance, you might think, so what? Nearly all trees have green leaves. But let me remind you of this description of Laurelin, one of the two trees of Valinor. Quote, the other bore leaves of a young green, like the new opened beech. Their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground. I believe this firework, designed by Gandalf, who as a spiritual being of the Maiar, lived in Valinor before coming to Middle-earth, this firework is a callback to that golden tree of Valinor, Laurelin from whose dying fruit the sun was created, and whose golden light was radiated in the golden hair of Galadriel, and was the inspiration for Feanor to create the Silmarils, the great jewels of the First Age. If none of that makes sense, go check out episodes 2, 9, and 42. Let's fast forward to Rivendell, when we see Elrond's memory of 3,000 years ago, when he and Isildur went to Mount Doom, and Elrond tried to convince Isildur to destroy the ring. This scene is a movie invention. I don't remember an allusion to it in the books, but I've seen some memes going around the internet of this scene, and the basic question is, if Elrond was so mighty, why didn't he just take the ring from Isildur and cast it into the fire himself? The answer is actually really simple, and it's the same reason why Gandalf and Galadriel can't take the ring. Because it is the one ring. Elrond, a keeper of a ring of power by that point, understood the draw to power that the One Ring could induce. Because Elrond was already a powerful elf, he knew that he could very likely be seduced by the evil of the ring. 
His temptation is not unlike Galadriel's. She knew that with the One Ring she could rule Middle-earth at her will, but such a Middle-earth would be worse than under Sauron's domination. So Elrond not taking the ring demonstrates his humility in the face of power. Also, given that Isildur made a claim on the ring, for Elrond to take the ring he likely would have had to kill Isildur. So Elrond's possession of the One Ring would have begun with the murderous betrayal of a friend. Do you think if he started his stewardship of the ring under those terms that he would have willingly thrown it into the fire? I do not. And we actually have an example of this. Smeagol started his possession of the ring by murdering his friend. And that did not go well for Smeagol. In contrast, Bilbo and Frodo are unique. Bilbo was the only person who willingly passed on the ring. And Frodo took possession of the ring not through murder. I believe that's part of the reason why the ring had very little effect on them. This year is the first year that I have had the opportunity to compare Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies to another live-action screen adaptation of Tolkien's world, specifically Amazon's Rings of Power. On a positive note, I was thrilled again to see Casa Doom as the bleak, dark tomb it is, when compared to the green and light-filled halls of the Rings of Power portrayal. However, the stark contrast of these adaptations couldn't be more clear than in the troll-fighting scenes. Let's look at the Fellowship of the Ring. The company has had a long journey and faced many dangers already in trying to destroy the ring. They are trapped in the mines of Moria and have to fight a cave troll to escape. Boromir, a mighty warrior, seems exasperated to have to fight a troll, and the fight requires the efforts of every member of the company, even the untrained hobbits. I think Sam is the only one who never takes a shot at the troll. Everyone is needed to overcome this great challenge. The company works together as a team, and the stakes of the fight are huge. Sam almost gets squashed, Boromir is thrown to the wall, Legolas uses half of his unlimited supply of arrows, and Frodo, the ring-bearer, gets skewered worse than a wild boar. The stakes are huge in this fight. The whole scene takes up about four minutes of screen time. Now, let's look at the troll-fighting scene in Rings of Power. Galadriel's company has also had a long journey, and are trying to find evil. The elven warriors, like Boromir, take the troll as a serious threat. However, unlike the Fellowship of the Ring, Everyone is ragdolls to this troll. The elven warriors, for all their strength and training, can't even get one good hit. I mean, even fool of a took Pippin got his blade into the troll more than once. Good thing warrior princess Galadriel is there, because in like 10 seconds, she single-handedly brings down the troll while the rest of her company just stands around and watches. The whole scene is over in about a minute. To me, it's a little silly, but I'll give the showrunners credit. Maybe they were trying to demonstrate that Galadriel is super strong and athletic, compared to other elves, and that her leadership skills were so poor that she barges right in while the rest of her team stands around and watches. And that'll be her character arc, how she overcomes her impulsive athleticism in order to fight evil in other ways. But to me, the Fellowship troll fighting scene is much more satisfying. It demonstrates the scale of the problem more, involves more of the characters in a life or death situation. Everyone contributes rather than the lone wolf hero, and the stakes are simply more dramatic. The ring bearer being skewered versus Galadriel looking awesome. But enough of that. Let's pop over to the land of the Lady Galadriel in the Third Age, Lothlorien, when the Fellowship arrives there after escaping Moria. Notice how often the word hope is said while Aragorn is on screen or being talked to or about. Celeborn says, quote, What hope you had. When the camera is on Aragorn, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's almost as if Aragorn is taking this personally. Later, Boromir shares that, quote, It is long since we had any hope while he is talking to Aragorn. What is Aragorn's connection with the concept of hope? 
On a surface level, he is the hope of a reunited kingdom of men. The elves are fading and leaving Middle-earth, dwarves are dwindling, the time of men has come, and Aragorn in many ways can restore men to their former glory. But deeper than that, when Aragorn was fostered in Rivendell, Elrond did not call him by his true name, but instead named him Estelle, meaning hope. Aragorn's mother told him before he went into the wild, quote, I have given hope to the Dúnedain. I have kept no hope for myself. Estelle is also the name that Aragorn gives Arwen when he first meets her, quote, Estelle I was called, but I am Aragorn, Arathorn's son. This would also be the last words that Arwen ever spoke to Aragorn before he died, quote, Estelle, Estelle. Lastly, from the Fellowship, I want to point out the complexity of three-dimensional characters in this story. Boromir's attempt to take the ring from Frodo is a prime example of how complex characters should be in order to make an enchanting story. We know that Boromir's primary motivation is to bring glory to Gondor through force of arms, and in this scene we see that motivation and more. In just a few minutes, Boromir goes from convincing arguments to forceful assaults, even ascribing Frodo with evil motivations, and then repenting and coming back to himself, going on to defend Merry and Pippin, even with arrows sticking out of his chest. Boromir is a complex character, who is pulled by a lot of motivations, some good and some bad, and he succumbs to some of those draws. Then Frodo is confronted by Aragorn, and Frodo asks, quote, Can you protect me from yourself? This question only has weight if Frodo, Aragorn, and us as an audience can recognize Aragorn's potential fallibility. Aragorn could be tempted by the ring. It could corrupt him too, just as it did Boromir. Aragorn shows his true quality, though, by letting the ring go. I don't want to make this another Rings of Power roast, but the contrast was so apparent in my mind. Nearly all of the characters in Season 1 of Rings of Power are one-dimensional. Their motivations are muddied. Some character motivations are just so simple. Angry she-elf wants revenge, she must be a South Pole elf, manipulative king lies to servant, and so on. Perhaps I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, as it were, but there's something lacking in the Rings of Power characters, especially when compared to the depth and complexity of the Fellowship of the Ring. So those are some new insights I've had from the Fellowship of the Ring. We'll get to the two towers right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On to the Two Towers. Admittedly, as of this recording, my family and I are only about halfway through watching the Two Towers, and my kids would be highly unhappy, to say the least, if I watched it without them. So these new insights are from the first half of the movie. First, if you're not aware, the Two Towers refers to Sauron's Baradur in Mordor and Saruman's tower called Orthanc at Isengard. I've heard that there's some confusion about that, and I'm not sure why, because the book and this movie's prologue by Saruman makes that pretty clear. I guess the other major tower would be Minas Tirith, but this middle story of the trilogy 
is all about the alliance between Sauron and Saruman, and how the good guys need to stop Saruman before they can fully turn their attention to Sauron. Let's start with how Aragorn introduces himself and his companions to Aemir of the Rohirrim. He says, quote, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn. This is Gimli, son of Gloin, and Legolas of the Woodland Realm. Why doesn't Legolas's father get mentioned? Because, fun fact, his father isn't given a name anywhere in the Hobbit book. He is simply referred to as Elven King. He is named in the Lord of the Rings as Thranduil, and if you've seen the Hobbit movies, you'll know that he was a pretty complex elf. But perhaps this line by Aragorn in Rohan is a throwback to the King of the Elves in Mirkwood, not having been given a name in the Hobbit book. Or maybe the writers just didn't want to throw out any more irrelevant father's names. Who knows? Let's switch to Frodo and Sam's story. I had not noticed this before, but when the camera pans out for the wide landscape shot of the Dead Marshes, you can see two tiny hobbit-like figures following a small, gray, crouching golem figure in the center of the landscape. I always just thought that it was a shot of the marshes, but I love the little details of seeing Frodo, Sam, and Gollum navigating their way through the marsh. Also, you can notice some lash marks on Gollum's back, evidence of his capture and torture at the hands of Sauron's servants. Let's make a timeline reference here. Gollum escaped from Barad-dûr in late June 3018. Nine months later, in May 3019, Frodo follows Gollum into the Dead Marshes. I'm no medical professional, but I love the detail of nine months later, the lashes have scarred Gollum's back, and in some cases, are still healing. It's sad for Gollum, and makes us pity him all the more, and also shows that off-screen actions have consequences in this movie, even events that happened months before rather than characters having no backstory and simply being plopped into a tale. We also get our first glimpse of the Nazgul, since they were washed away in the river at Isengard. That happened on October 20th, 3018, so it's been about eight months that the Nazgul had to return to Minas Morgul, rebuild their strength, and get back on the hunt for the ring. For movie-only fans, though, there's a few references to flying Nazgul before this encounter in the marshes, including one over Rohan, that were written into the books. Here's another evidence of off-camera action, and something I hadn't noticed before. After Gandalf the White has been revealed, and he and the others step out of the forest, Gandalf is clad in a Lothlorien cloak and leaf clasp, just like the other members of the Fellowship. I don't know if that was described directly in the book, but it is a visual reminder of the timeline that Tolkien painstakingly created. The Fellowship left Lorien on February 16, and a reincarnated Gandalf arrives there on the very next day. According to Karen Wynne Fonstad's Atlas of Middle-earth, Gandalf stayed in Lorien for about a week, before going to Fangorn to meet Treebeard, the Hobbits, and Aragorn. So yes, Gandalf certainly had the opportunity to receive the same gifted clothing that was given to the Fellowship in Lorien. And another detail in a wide landscape shot that I had noticed before, as Gandalf and the others are riding from Fangorn Forest to Edoras, the camera pans from some mountains, and then in the background you can see some burning villages. Again, not sure how I missed this before, but it's an additional subtle clue to the damage that orcs are doing throughout Rohan, setting the stage for how dire Rohan's situation is, and how the good guys need to take action right away. That night, Gandalf and Aragorn have a conversation, and Gandalf calls Aragorn, quote, the heir of Numenor. Now, thanks to Rings of Power, you likely have a better idea of what Numenor is. It was the greatest kingdom of men on Middle-earth, rising and falling in the Second Age. At the height of its power, the Numenorians had captured Sauron and imprisoned him in their island kingdom. However, Sauron rose to power in Numenor, but had a chief rival, Elendil, and the faithful Numenorians. Sauron hated Elendil and his son Isildur, 
from the days of his corruption in Numenor to the sieges they put against him in Mordor, to finally Isildur cutting the ring from his hand. Sauron hates Elendil's heirs, all the way down to Aragorn. This particular bloodline of mortal men is his bane. Gandalf using that title for Aragorn triggered all of that in my brain. But then I thought of all the major opponents that Sauron is facing at this time. The heir of Numenor, who is Aragorn. Gandalf, a wizard of the Maiar, a class of spiritual beings more powerful than elves. And even Caladriel, a wise and powerful elf from the very first age of Middle-earth. So yes, Sauron has mighty armies. He has sown dread and fear throughout Middle-earth. His shadow lies on all living creatures. But as Gandalf says, quote, He is not so mighty yet that he is above fear. It's a great line to show that even with all the mighty battles and deeds that are done, there's another fight against Sauron, the psychological fight that mostly Gandalf, Elrond, and Galadriel are waging against him. This conflict is many-layered. Moving on to the funeral scene for Theoden's son, you can see on Theoden's collar several horse heads are embroidered. It's a lovely detail, one that again I hadn't seen before, but the reason I think it works so well is that this is a wardrobe detail that works only for the King of Rohan. Much could be and has been said about the details in the wardrobes for the Lord of the Rings movies, and Rings of Power for that matter, but something like this, an embroidered horse on the collar of the King of the Rohirrim, a word which means the Horse Lords, is not just a detail for detail's sake, but makes a statement about who that character is and the context in which he finds himself. Not just a detail but a story-enhancing detail. That enchants us. Even if we as an audience don't notice it for the first 30 times we see the movie. Ooh, this has been a lot of fun. I've been toying around with doing a breakdown of each of these movies. Maybe I'll seriously consider doing that. But there is so much to unpack in every scene. I've enjoyed it, and I hope that you've heard something that you hadn't considered before. Join me next time, where I'll finish with The Two Towers, and also go on into The Return of the King. Thanks for wandering Middle-earth with me today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work, you're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done, and your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. 
Within five or ten minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.